At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome, everybody, to the Finding Hermes podcast. I hope, as always, you're ready to lay your cards on the table and walk through those doors with Mercury, because after all, Mercury is uh, the god of the mind, but he's also the god of the tricks. And in this day and age, we need his help, or at least have him put his cards on the table so we can figure out what's going on with our psyche. And with us, it is truly an honor and a pleasure to have Dr. James Hollis to discuss his new book and other sundries. The book is The Broken Mirror. Jim, thank you very much for coming on. Privilege to be with you, Miguel. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. So uh, why don't we start with your book, um, The Broken mm -hmm. Mirror, as you write. Uh, why did you name it that? Uh, I think you do talk about it. It's based on uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, right, more or less? More or less, sure. There's a, there's a line in the King James Version that, that <clears throat> now I see through the glass darkly. And when they used the phrase the glass, they meant the mirror. I mm -hmm. see myself dimly in the mirror, but I have the hope of being seen holy. And of course, he's referencing uh, the view of divinity in the end of things. And I'm saying that, that those sort of haunting melancholy lines are still with us. Do we ever really see reality, number one? Never. And do we ever really see ourselves? And in so many ways, the mirror is broken. So to some degree, the initial chapters in that book are all addressing what are the factors inside of us that are self-defeating in our ostensible desire to know ourselves. But um, do you think, Jim, we are supposed to know ourselves? As many unions have said, the ego is this flashlight in the field that's supposed to deal with reality. It has its duty. Uh -huh. There's sure. so much more of us infinite. I mean, the ego is the tip of the iceberg. So maybe we're not supposed to know everything, uh, more like experience things, experience life. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I know in one part of your book, you talk about how you reach a certain birthday, and then you say, uh, you know less than you did when you were a child. Mm -hmm. Of course. No, I fully concur with what you just said. I'm just saying there's a natural desire. We say we want to know ourselves, and I would say, beware. You will find out things about yourself you really don't want to know. Yeah. I mean, that's where the shadow comes in. We don't want to know that at, at heart, at times, we're operating out of cowardice, or this is pettiness on our part, or jealousy, or greed, or whatever. But it's, it's there, you see. Um, no, I often liken the ego to a tiny wafer that is floating on a large iridescent ocean can be easily overwhelmed. And it has a very large function because it, its job is to help us interface with the outer world. So if you're walking across the street and a car is coming at you, it's the ego's job to say, step out of the way. And so it functions. It becomes a problem when A, it inflates itself, say, I am in charge here. I, I know what I'm doing. I just finished a clinical hour with someone who was looking back on some early choices in his life and saying, what was I thinking? You know, <laughs> and I said, at the time, you thought you knew what you were doing. This had to do with a committed relationship. You know, you thought you knew that person sufficiently. You thought you knew yourself. This was a wise decision. And it's been decades of uh, learning to the contrary, of course. But, but secondly, the, Ego can be problematic when it's caught in a complex. 
because as complex as we have, because we have history, they are clusters of our, of our history that retain the capacity when triggered to show up and occupy the ego. So I might say to myself, why is it yesterday when I really needed to speak up on that situation, something inside of me just froze and I didn't say it. Now I'm still stuck with the consequences. Well, you know, it triggered a part of our history that rose and said, you know, speaking up is going to be put you in peril in some way. So you just relapse into an old protective mechanism. Mm -hmm. The problem is what was once protective today often can get in your way. And that's one of the things we have to, to learn about our internal, you know, resistance to growth and development. Well said. And indeed, uh, one of the, um, uh, just to be transparent, Jim, uh, most of my life, I was diagnosed by many people as a, rap a rapid cycler, manic depressive. And I've struggled with drug addiction for half of my life. I've had a good <laughs> 10 years now. But even then, as uh, you know, Bill W. talked about, there's sobriety and then there's emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. One thing that really, a couple of things that really helped me was the idea of complexes. Once I started to understand and recognize these complexes coming up, even my moods and everything began to get better. I mean, I, I love how you write... Um, uh, <clears throat> who you write uh let me quote you please it does help to understand that they are ephemera clusters of archaic history with no more substance than the gossamer threads of a spider's web for all their threat they present uh, the present hour is always reclaimed by going through the web rather than halting before it this is why jung observed that we do not solve these complexes of history for history is carried in our neurology and our psyches but we can grow larger than the reductive and regressive plans for us and i think that's one way it's really helped recognizing the complexes, understanding the archetypes between them, the history, where they were created, and seeing them as sort of a demonic possession. <laughs> well, it is a state of possession. And I've actually said, and, and understand I'm speaking metaphorically, mm -hmm. when we're in the grip of a very powerful complex, we are transiently psychotic. Mm -hmm. Transiently, until it spins out its energy and falls back into the unconscious. And then we we ask ourselves, why did I make that decision? Why was I so upset yesterday? That sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> or I always say this in talks and people laugh, but it's not so funny. Uh, when you're in love, you're transiently psychotic. You know, you don't see the world as it is. You see it yeah. as, as, you, as, as your projection is rendering it, you see. That's why we've talked historically about lovers are fools, you know, or love is madness. And, and there's a madness that is cured only by real life and experience that wears through that. And you realize, well, I was in a complex when I made that decision. Yeah, indeed. I mean, most people understand a complex, like most people know a superiority complex. That's part mm -hmm. of our everyday lingo, if you would, but, uh, a complex is there a, do you have a, a simple definition? I mean, I usually tell people think of, uh, we can all relate when we get in the car, and all of a sudden we get really angry, our mood changes, we're screaming at people and get out of the way and I'm late. And then suddenly we get out of the car and suddenly we're like, oh, I feel fine. My brother is just like that. It's like dealing with two human beings. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it, <clears throat> Jung actually called them splinter personalities. When mm -hmm. one is triggered, you become that person for the moment. Just to follow up the example that you gave, road rage is a classic example. It's not that someone just pulled in front of you. Traffic, as we all know, is weaving in and out. People do that all the time. You do that. I do that. Mm -hmm. and, and at a particular moment when that person is stressed out or when they're particularly vulnerable, uh, someone cuts in front of them, let's say, and, and it triggers that history. And up it comes as, what is it saying to us? Oh, there they go again. They're doing that to you again. Are you going to let them get away with that? And then you see what's coming up is history, not mm -hmm. the present moment. It's whatever the history of that person's feelings of being abused or taken advantage of or disregarded. And that's what leads to, quote, rage. You see, it's unprocessed emotion that hasn't gone away. It's just stored in the basement. So... And there are positive complexes. You know, I, I, I see your lovely dog behind you, you know, <laughs> and, 
if you didn't have some good bonding experiences in your life, you wouldn't be able to form relationship. You would, it would say, the complex would say, stay away, stay away. It's only going to wind up hurting your feelings or something. Uh, so our capacity to care for people, to appreciate justice, uh, to carry through on our commitments, those are positive complexes. So we need to hear complex as a neutral word. It's like, another way of putting it very simply is how is history playing out in this moment? And the truth is, most of the time we don't know, because the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. But it's continuously spilling into the world through us. That's that's the key. Oh, well said. Yes, we're again, like you said, the ego is this little thing, and uh, the complexes are all these personas that come up and take over. And I don't think I've learned you can't do much when you're in a complex, except hopefully recognize it. But as you write, two things that I've learned to help me out is. Um, and this is in the broken mirror, but uh, a sense of overwhelm. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, that's when the complex will, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism and abandonment. When I feel the world just isn't on my side or people on my side, that's when this other complex will come up and this person, Miguel, will be possessed by anger or resentment or whatever. Mm -hmm, of course. And, you know, we're never free of our history. It travels where we travel. And, um, it's hard to recognize it while you're in it. It's usually after it's spun out its energy, then you realize, well, my reaction was perhaps excessive. Where the amount of energy generated is in excess of the situation, there's a complex at work. The problem is when you're in it, it feels appropriate. I'm not angry at you. I'm not yelling at you. You say, if you heard a tape of that, you'd say, that's an angry person, you know? <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it's also true that it always manifests in your body. So if you recognize there, there's some, you know, tightness in your body or this or that's happening, then you realize it's triggering. So it's not like we get rid of the complexes. As Jung said, we can outgrow their influence in our life. But we also begin to recognize them sooner. So the damage is less. So, you know, for example, if you're going in for an exam or a job interview, it's natural to feel apprehension. But most of the energy is coming from your history because underneath is every child's need for approval and acceptance by the other. Well, how much of that energy from our history, which we all have, is, is feeding into your stress at the moment, you see? If you can separate that. Often I've said in therapy, you know, the, the key is to try to find out where this level of reaction or feeling in you is being fed from something prior to all of this. And then you can begin to separate those things. You see, if I fail the exam or I don't get the job, my life's not going to end. But if it's tapped into that primal fear, if the other doesn't accept me for who I am, I'm in real trouble, as every child would be. So as ir irrational as that is, our stress at the moment is a rational response, given what has been triggered in us. No, that makes uh, perfect sense. And it's a work in progress. <clears throat> I'm sorry, a work in progress. Um, another thing that really helped me out, Jim, especially from a Jungian standpoint, for years, I was ashamed of being an addict or ashamed that I couldn't control my moods and would feel suicidal one day and like uh, Dionysus the next day. And then I realized uh, uh, through, <clears throat> again, Jungian work, I realized that there really was nothing wrong with me. And what was really happening was that I was getting communication from my soul, all the memories, desires. I realized that my depression and my uh, manic swings were a form of communication with my soul, and I simply needed to listen to what my soul was telling me. Once I realized that, this, that we weren't aligned, I, it, things got really better. I mean, I think as you write, or was it Jung who wrote, the soul always knows and pathologizes and protests when we flag or fail. Okay. So once I started communicating with my soul and saying, there's nothing wrong with me, I just need to get aligned with my purpose, my soul, my psyche, things mm -hmm. got a lot better. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think in, in certainly sympathy with your, your situation, you know, you're also dealing with a, a biological magnification of those feelings, mm -hmm. you know, so 
that's that's one reason why it's so hard to find a center ground there, you know, and the fact that you could, you know, be able to say, all right, but what's really, what is this motion really about? Mm-hmm. Where's this really coming from? I've often said to folks, when you make a decision, the key is to ask, well, where's this really coming from in me? In other words, I might be doing a good thing, so to speak, but if it's coming from an old codependence or if it's coming out of the fear of conflict, it may not be a good decision for me psychologically, you see. So we always have to say, where is this coming from me really? And you don't trust your first response because first response will be the justification of the old status quo, you know? Yeah, that is true. And I think, uh, let me quote here again from your wonderful book, The Broken Mirror. Jung said that at the bottom of every depression, and there's always a bottom there, one will find a task, the addressing of which will take one's life in a new direction. And so I, and so many others, have found directives arising from those most dismal soul swamps. So that has helped too. Depression is a wake-up call. It's a communication. There is, again, I'm going, if I go down to the cave to see that dragon, as Campbell said, I'll find the treasure. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. <clears throat> and, you know, naturally, when we have a depression, and people will, um, the first thing we want is to stop that bad feeling. Mm-hmm. But we also need to ask the question, why has my psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support from where my ego upstairs, the executive suite, is making all these decisions? Now, I, I am a perfect example because... At age 35, I had a real midlife depression. Up to that point, I was an academic. And and that sent me to my first hour of analysis in Philadelphia a long time ago. Little did I know that I was starting the second half of life. Little did I know I was going to transition in my professional life and career. But it it was beginning a process of conversing with and and deepening the dialogue with what's going on inside. And um, I look back on that depression now as a gift, but it certainly didn't feel like it at the time. But it's, it, A, it got my attention. It started an inquiry that's never ended. And I think it becomes lifelong. You know, what's going on in here? Where is this coming from in me? That kind of conversation has to go on. Otherwise, we're caught in a complex or a self-delusion of some kind. And when you look at it that way, you see... Your psyche is not your enemy. It's not colluding against you. It's it's giving you clues that it has a perspective about what is your ultimate healthy path. And if I can pay attention to that, I, I begin to close the gap between what I think is the right course for me or what my world seems to be demanding from me and I'm reacting to naturally to to possibly finding the the thread through the thicket that says this is your journey you know in the first half of life i've said before and people always sort of laugh at this it's like it's a gigantic unavoidable mistake and (laughs) and the problem is it's unavoidable just Mm. go out and do it you know (laughs) because at first you're trying to deal with what do my parents want for me what does the school teacher want for me Mm. what does the 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 employer want for me what am i what does my partner want for me etc and you have to form enough ego strength to leave home, to go out in the world. You know, I mean, we're seeing a phenomenon now of awful lot of young people, including college graduates, staying home with mom and pa. And I'm not talking because of the pandemic. I'm not talking because of economic uh, dislocations. I'm talking about <clears throat> they haven't developed enough ego strength to set out into the world. I grew up with a working class family and I knew from day one, you, you're, you're going to be working whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And so I never had any problem with that transition, but it's sort of like, I, I want the comforts of my middle-class life. I mean, isn't every baby bo- born with an iPhone? Don't we <laughs> all have access to the internet? You know, yeah. forgetting somebody had to go out and work to earn that, to make it possible. You just don't, one young man said, one of my clients, I still can't believe this. <clears throat> he has a graduate, he's graduated from a very nice university. And he, he said, I, and he's at home, he, they just can't root him out. 
he said, I'm not going to consider any job offers that don't start with six figures. And I think, what planet is he from? (laughs) But that, that bespeaks, and I think part of it, frankly, is a cover for the fact that he's also afraid. And that I understand. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what it means to get a job, to go out and work, to show up every day, whether you like your job or not. Mm-hmm. And, and so underneath all of that is the question of, you know, <laughs> where do I go in the second half of life? And that's what the second half of life is about, is about getting yourself back again. You know, first half and this is oversimplification, but it's like, what's the world want of me? And how do I meet those demands and expectations? Second half, what does my soul want of me? See, that's a different matter. And I'm using the word soul as the literal translation of the Greek word psyche. Mm-hmm. It's like your deepest reality is your soul. And what is it asking of you in terms of your health and well-being and your growth? I think the psyche has two agendas. One, growth and development whether we like it or not. And second is self-healing. It's a self-healing system. So even our symptoms, you know, as Jung said, even our neuroses are already misguided, but honest efforts at self-cure. You see, we have to recognize something then is hurting and calling for our attentiveness to, to address what is being neglected or abused in our lives. And the word psychotherapy from the Greek means literally to listen or pay attention to the soul. Mm-hmm. See, that puts a whole different spin on it, you know. Then you realize, well, you know, I'm, you know, without being caught up in either narcissism or self-absorption, I'm invited to a conversation with my own depths here. If a person doesn't do that, they're going to continue through the second half of their journey, responding only to the loudest stimulus coming from their environment. Mm-hmm. or the traffic of their complexes. How do we ever break out of that without having a, a, a conversation of some kind with our own depths? And this is not just an intellectual concept. It, it's, it's an emotional opening to see what is wanting life and wanting expression through us. That's a whole different different agenda. Yeah, that's beautifully said, Jim. Uh, at, you were talking about people today, and it seems, uh, and you've talked about it and written uh, a lot, but yeah, the society today is uh, something else. I don't think I've ever seen <clears throat> so many people shadow projecting to others and creating scapegoats, and there's a huge sense of victimhood uh, going around, and uh, people are just, uh, yeah, it's something else. Do you agree? Of course. Yeah. And in a previous book called Living Between Worlds, I talked about how throughout history, suddenly the ground shifts upon which people stand. And when the ground shifts, you're naturally going to feel some anxiety. Mm -hmm. And and our current cultural, uh, you know, malaise is a right, apart from the pandemic, which is a different issue, arises out of the anxiety generated by the rapidity of change. Mm When I was a child, my parents believed there were firm categories of nature set in motion by nature. So they're ontological or and or given by God uh, about what a woman is, what a man is, what the races are, social and class structure, et cetera, et cetera. And, And we've realized through the last few decades, triggered by the 60s in particular, that these are human constructs these are social categories and and all of those categories of sexual mores and and uh, expectations role definitions all of those things were human concepts and as they are challenged then it's it creates an ambiguous ground underneath which creates anxiety and what people do in the face of anxiety say let's go back to where way things were you see Well, I was there too, and they weren't good. They weren't good if you were a woman. They weren't good if you were a minority. They weren't good if you came from a certain ethnic background. Um, A very stratified and exclusivistic society. And um, so what we live in now is a freer and more uh, free-flowing society. But again, that that creates a lot of distress. And... uh, 
and and the fact that there are huge um, you know social and economic dislocations. You know, my grandfather was a coal miner from Sweden, came and died in a coal mine. Um, but you know, the future isn't in coal. The future isn't in oil and gas. You know, steel's not coming back to America. Let's deal with this. You know, the future belongs to the flexible. Uh, the future belongs to those who can recognize it. It's in uh, healthcare, education, the sciences, um, et cetera, um, information. And uh, a person who's still trying to revivify the old world order is, is really caught in, in a delusion. And it, it's never going to work. But that's, that's the Sturm und Drang that our culture is going through at this moment. Agreed and well said. And I think at the heart of it, and I think the pandemic has only made it worse, and that is the idea of the unknown, ambiguity. That's why I keep saying this is the age of Hermes, because talk about ambiguity and doorways, transitions, everything is upside down. But you do get to talk to the gods if you uh, get on her, if you can catch Hermie. And even it was, I think, uh, let's see, here's a quote by, of all people, Freud. He pointed out the human mind has a low tolerance threshold for ambiguity. It clutches at straws in order to avoid drowning in uncertainty. And I think that's just natural, right, Jim? We all want to know that where our next meal is coming, that our mom's going to bring our bottle, that we're going to be tucked into bed. So, but during the pandemic, it's even gotten worse beyond the changing chi- times you've talked about. That's absolutely right. I mean, Freud's comment is is absolutely ac- accurate. It's what I was saying. And, you know, it's, the pandemic is the first time in America since World War II that has reached into every household and says, you are at risk. You have life and death decisions to make. You have to alter your lifestyle. Um, you know, there have been national events before, including Vietnam and, you know, the Challenger disaster and 9-11. But this is the first time that every single person in some way was indirectly but immediately threatened, as was true with, you know, World War II. I was a child in World War II. And while I was safe, I knew the world was not safe. I saw what was going on around me. So um, that that has and also another factor there. A large number of people had no idea the degree to which their sense of self, their sense of values was being supported by their external structures. Mm -hmm. Like Monday morning, what do you do? Well, you get up and go to work. All right. Well, you may or may not like it, but guess what? When you don't go to work, where's all that? You fall back upon yourself. So many people didn't realize how their jobs, their associations with other people, family connections you know, uh, sports and other diversions of that sort of thing, we're carrying that sense of self. And so take that away. And, you know, Blaise Pascal said in the 17th century, all of our troubles stem from one source. People can't tolerate being in an empty room by themselves more than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And there's truth to that. I think about that whenever I go to a doctor's office. There's always some TV blaring and there's all these things. And everybody's sitting there. It's like, we have to be diverted. What is it we're diverted from, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, you're diverted from your own soul, ironically. If you can't tolerate yourself, why would anybody else want to tolerate you? You know, think about it that way. And it is a hermetic world. It always has been. But there are nodules in history when it becomes more evident, more pronounced. And, uh, you know, Hermes was the god of uh, change, transformation, quicksilver. Mm -hmm. You know, Mercury, his Latin name is like grab a hold, a handful of Mercury, and what do you get? It slips away from you, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? So, uh, but Hermes is also the, the secret knowledge as well, hermetic knowledge, we say. And what is the secret knowledge? Well, um, that's for each person to figure out. Uh, Jung's perspective was there's something inside of you that knows right what's right for you. Um, again, not out of self-absorption or narcissism, but if you pay attention to that, you'll, you'll be more deeply and accurately grounded in your own reality and you'll make better choices in your life, you know. Indeed, I would uh, also agree with that wholeheartedly. And 
What do you advise for people to uh, find out how to accept ambiguity or chaos? I mean, what advice do you give people? What's a process? Because again, like we're talking, our mind is wired to want to know. <laughs> sure. No, it is. It is. And it's wired to want control. Well, I, I think sometimes education is helpful to say, look, history is full of examples of times when everything fell apart. Mm -hmm. You know, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Yeah, exactly. The blood dim tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passion and intensity. That's that's Yates writing in 1917. He's in the middle of the Great War and 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 the troubles in Ireland. And uh, you know, from time to time, things fall apart. What carries you through? What something Jung said that I think about every day, and I I think it's our ultimate challenge. Jung said we all need to learn what supports us when nothing supports us. And for many people, that's been traditional religion. Mm -hmm. For fewer people in our time, is that the case? So then what do they fall back upon? Well, often the surrogates to be found in popular culture, you know, hedonism, materialism, um, self-absorption, narcissism. Um, and how well is that working? Well, not so well as, as, we, as we see. So I, I, I think, first of all, one has to recognize life is not stasis, it's change. As Heraclitus said, um, you know, life is a flowing river. You can't step twice in the same river because even the second time you step in, you're, you're changed. You float on, you know. So, again, what provides continuity amid discontinuity and change? Well, it's, it's your own psychological depth. That's the, the soul is what gives you continuity. The child you were, the infant you were, is still alive and well inside of you. And while you can't let the child's understandings and motives and strategies govern your life, you need to stay in touch with that part of you because that's also the inquisitive part of you. That's the spontaneous part. That's the creative part. That's the developmental part. You know, like when a person dreams of a child in the dream, which child are they talking about? The, the whiny, needy child or the child who is the uh, carrier of future possibility? You know, it's like... Where is that going to play out in your life? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah, I think um, there was something, one also, something that Jung said that always stayed with me is he said, uh, we didn't come to this world to be good, but to be ourselves. And yeah. I think once I realized, <clears throat> like everybody else, and as you've been talking, we all have a, a destiny that our soul wants for us. And uh, it's, it's amazing once you get on that path. Uh, and you, and speaking of not coming here to be good, in one part of your book, you say you consider yourself a recovering nice guy. What do you mean by that, Jim? I think you're well, talking about codependency, right? You didn't come well, here to be good, but you did. <laughs> essentially, essentially, yes. It doesn't mean you have to become a bad person. You see, a reflexively good person is not really a good person. They're just well-conditioned or pathologically conditioned. You know, I, I grew up in the Midwest where everybody was nice, you know, and, and I realized that the opposite of that kind of reflexive niceness, which is not really a choice, the opposite of that is authenticity. No one ever said, be, be authentic, whatever that means to you. I mean, we're not here endorsing evil when we say don't be nice. What we're saying here is be conscious and realize many times what you're doing is coming out of a not a good place. As I said before, it's coming out of a place of narcissism or it's coming out of an old fear defense as understandable as that. Is that sufficient to govern you in your later decades? I, I don't think so. So to say I'm a recovering nice person, my first reflex 
um, given the world I grew up in was, um, you know, be agreeable, you know, work with the situation and Mm -hmm. find a way, you know. And then sometimes you realize, but that also winds up violating something very deep within me. I actually think it was that kind of conflict within that led to my midlife depression. There was so much in me screaming to say, be adaptive, fit in, uh, make nice. And another part of me is saying, but you, you have a different path. I'm making this conscious now. At the time, it wasn't conscious, and it took its form in a depression. That's what sent me back to the drawing board. And from time to time, I think we all have to go back to the drawing board. You know? When you had this crisis, Jim, did you have, as some have said, completely destroy your worldview and get a completely new worldview? Or how did you, did the ego have to be reconstructed? I mean, the ego is a complex too, right? But except it's a complex complex. in charge of reality. That's, that's right. It's it's in charge of your interface with the external world. That's correct. And uh, no, I I think it came primarily in terms of uh, a lot of repressed emotion that came up in overwhelming ways. And, uh, it, it, I, I, I would say that part, I've always been thankful for education. I considered my school teachers in childhood my heroes, <laughs> along with Lou Gehrig and Abraham Lincoln. You know? <laughs> and uh, I, I always identify with education. That's why you and I are talking today. And um, I also realize I, I use the life of the mind to defend against the magnitude of my feeling life. It wasn't that it was absent. It was just that I felt I knew enough to know that it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I just kept it at bay by an intellectual approach to things. And so guess what? Things don't go away. They always come back somewhere. <laughs> they show up in your body. They show up in, 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 an, in an emotional expression, such as the depression. Uh, they wind up being projected into your environment or they govern your actions. So that's what Freud called the return of the repressed. It doesn't go away. It always goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. And, and so I, I would say what midlife brought me was to go back and begin to feel what already I was feeling inside, but had distanced myself from. Great. And you were talking about, yeah, the ego helps us not step out in front of a bus. But one of my, might say, aha moments, and let me know your thoughts. I was reading Jung, and I forget where it is, but he has a passage that says the unconscious has a thousand ways of snuffing out an individual. In other words, uh, the, if if you're not doing your soul's journey it might decide just to take you out. And he talks about you'll be careless while skiing the Alps or doing that. Mm-hmm. When I realized how small my ego was and that I was part of an adventure, it was very humbling, but it's also freeing because I used to think my ego was the demiurge. When I realized my unconscious means business and if I don't get to work, it's going to be bad, really bad, like sometimes death bad. I said, oh my God, I better get to work and see what it wants. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. No. And and we have to understand the ego, excuse me, the, the unconscious is nature at work. Mm-hmm. We are natural creatures. We are animals, but we also have developed um, a capacity to reflect upon ourselves reflecting as we're doing at this moment. And as far as we know, most animals don't do that. They have a certain kind of consciousness. Your dog knows who you are, knows certain patterns in your life, and knows certain words and so forth. Um, But as far as we know, and I could be wrong, um, it's not reflecting upon itself reflecting, you know, and and that is both our gift and our curse, because it's that which makes us neurotic, because as Jung pointed out, all of our troubles stem from getting separated from our instincts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of dogs, it reminds me of a time when my um, mighty Lhasa Apso named Shadrach years ago, I took into the vet for surgery. And so when I went to pick him up, I said to the veterinarian, um, when can I let him up and walk? And he looked at me, he says, he's a dog. He knows when to get up, just get out of the way, you know? <laughs> and I thought, of course. Um, and I, I learned something from that. I'm telling you that story from 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And um, I thought, well, yeah, nature knows. There again, I was imposing something on nature. Mm-hmm. 
Now, we also have to contain our nature because as uh, Tennyson said once, nature is red in tooth and claw. You know, nature can be violent and vicious as we know, and don't think that's not within us. History tells us it is. But we, we are in charge of what spills into the world through us. So I can say on the one hand, the unconscious is unconscious, so I don't know what it is, but I also have to say, and this is paradoxical, at the end of the journey, I'm responsible for my choices. No matter what happened to me in history, I'm responsible for my choices and what spills into the world through me consciously or unconsciously, including how it affects my children, my partner, my society. And, um, you know, that is a paradox, but that's part of what that ego is obliged to, to wrestle with and become accountable for. So I suspect we would agree that the central premise of being an adult is not just having a big body and maybe a big role. It's knowing I'm accountable for the, my choices and their consequences. I think that's a bottom line definition. If that's true then I'm responsible for this conversation with the unconscious. Because as, as I've many times pointed out, we don't rise in the morning and look in the mirror while we're brushing our teeth and say, you know, today you're going to do the same stupid things you've done for decades. But chances are you will. But the moment you recognize, many times people have said, well, where do I start with this process? Mm. And I said, it doesn't mean everybody should be in therapy, but start with your patterns. Because particularly the patterns that you find counterproductive to your well-being or potentially even harmful to others, such as that reflexive niceness mm -hmm. or patterns where your fear dominates. Well, now you know that behavior, that pattern is being generated by a, a complex in you. That's what you have to deal with is, is the complex in you that, in other words, what makes you make that decision even when it's against your long-term best interests. And that's what you have to deal with. And that's inside of you. The other piece of this puzzle, as I've also said many times, um, the enemies are within, you know? Every morning, the two gremlins at the foot of the bed, fear and lethargy. Mm. Wherever we are, they follow. No matter what you do today, you're there tomorrow. Fear says, you know, it's too much for you. Life's just too big. Chill out. Lethargy says, turn on the telly, watch Oprah, have some chocolate. And tomorrow's another day. And guess what? Then your life is over. And you think, was I here? Did it matter? What mattered in my life, you see? And I say this with sympathy, not judgment. Uh, many folks will live their life without having been here, where they in some way face, why am I here? Not as, and not what does the world want from me? That's again, the agenda of the first half, but what wants to enter the world through me? That's a different question. I'm here to embody something. And it may be very private. It's not about being out in the public. It, it's about becoming who you are, it means you're coming from a center that is you, not an, an old adaptation that was perhaps necessary, perhaps obligatory, but today's an impediment. Because the third chapter in that book talks about how our stories that we necessarily evolve out of what happened to us become narratives that capture us. We believe our own stories, so to speak. And they're often the perspectives of a child. And as long as those stories prevail, we're, we're, we're caught in the perspective of a child, whether we know it or not. And the second chapter is on the necessity of adaptation. But with each adaptation, there's another potential for being captivated by the past. So that how much of our behavior is reflexive in character? And how much of it is actually a choice that's authentic in the moment? And if you don't reflect on that periodically, and I think daily, you're on automatic pilot. And one day, you just won't be here. And then you have to ask the question, what was that about? You know? Uh, yeah, I was having this note. I was thinking, as you were speaking, Jim, <clears throat> but you write... 
understand that one can only embrace the mystery through verbs, not nouns. When Jung asked where the gods of the antique world went, he concluded those energies departed, leaving only husk for consciousness to fasten onto. What is divine, so to speak, is the energy, not the husks. So I thought of this quote uh, you're saying, and was he talking about living a symbolical life? This, ver or when you're talking about the mystery is a verb, we can't know it. Mm -hmm. Well, he asked a question that only someone with a, an original mind like Jung would ask. He said, "Well, so where did the gods go when they left Olympus? You know, there was a time when Zeus was very real." and Hera, and Aphrodite, and, and uh, Apollo, and, and so forth. Where'd they go? And he said, what happened was people had numinous experiences. Those are experiences that reach out and sort of grab you. Mm -hmm. and, and out of that, images arose that became concepts. And concepts is how we begin to understand things. Concepts is what we try to pass on to other people. It's how you create institutions and transmit those. But with every step, you're one, one step further removed from the original felt encounter. So that's why he said when the gods die, when an era's um, driving powers and forces <clears throat> disappear, people are left holding the husk. And then they'll work extra hard to reinforce the husk. That's why a kind of nostalgia in America for the way things were is delusional because they weren't good at that time, but that's a story we have. And, and so, you know, what's real are not nouns because nouns are transient vehicles. The way I put it is, do you know anybody that collects used light bulbs? Well, of course not. <laughs> And what's the purpose of light? It's a vehicle. It's a receptive for the energy. And when the energy has left the light bulb, you have to leave it too. And yet institutions, and I, I don't say this critically, I'm just saying that um, be, become aware of that. You can be left holding an empty light bulb. Does it move you? Does it touch you? Does it speak to you today? And so forth. And part of what's happening in America, and this can be a good thing, is people are finding that their spirituality can be found legitimately in other places. I mean, the first places you look to is <laughs> booze, sex, sensationalism, <laughs> the newest shiny thing, you know, uh, the old standards, right? <laughs> and the old, the old uh, go-tos. But, you know, in a, in a way, if a person realizes, you know, I find the numinous in the work of my hands. I find it through a creative process. I find it through working with people. I find it in contemplation. I find it in nature. It's different for all of us. It's like find where something moves and touches you, which is why I say the basic principle that is helpful for us to make our choices in the realm of spirituality is resonance, resounding, resonance. If it's true for me or important for me, it resonates. So if we both walk into an art museum and you walk up to a painting and you're deeply moved to by it, maybe to tears even, and I walk by it, which is which of us is right? Mm -hmm. It's not a right or wrong. It's like in that particular arrangement of colors, it it generates a resonance within you, and if it doesn't have that resonance, it's it's not for you. Move on till you find what does. So I think the biggest change, and Jung pointed this out, as he always did, as early as the 1890s, he said, in our time, the burden of meaning has shifted from tribal mythology and sacred institutions to the shoulders of the individual. It's not to say there's nothing of value in these traditional forms, but the point is, do those husks still have numinosity for you? Do they still move and have resonance for you? And if they don't, you're hanging on to an old light bulb, you know, <laughs> and, and it's your job to put those pieces together, you see. And that is a profound spiritual freedom and dignity. And it's also terrifying for many folks, which is why the only spectrum, the only portion on the spectrum of the, American religious institutional 
uh, tradition since World War II has been fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the growing and, and have grown historically because it's a, it's a rush toward, quote, certainty. It's an abrogation of asking the question, what really is numinous for me? And for some po- folks, that is the right path for them. But for many others, it's an anxiety-driven choice. So again, the responsibility is a profound opportunity. It's also terrifying to individuals, you see. Figure out what speaks to you and then live it. And if you do, your psyche will support you. And if it doesn't, it's not going to work in the long run. We can't will these things. I think one of the things that I learned to my dismay at midlife was I had invested enormously in the power of will and energy. You don't quit. And then I had a disabling depression that says, but will is not everything. Will has to be in service to the right agenda, because if it isn't, your psyche will, will abandon you. You can work harder, dig the hole deeper that you're in. Listen to your soul. Uh, I can't, uh, can't think. Yeah, great advice. Great advice, Jim. And as we get to the end, uh, do you want to share audience about uh, your website? I, I know you just put out a new movie, which I'm going to watch uh, probably this weekend, uh, Soul Heal. Yes, yes. Um, Jose Partner, who is an L.A. A movie producer, approached me in a number of years ago, and he said, let's, let's have some conversations, make a, a movie together. And so we decided that what we would do would make a, a movie about the sort of <laughs> troubled condition of the modern American male. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only 23 minutes. We're doing it for nonprofit reasons. Any so-called profits uh, after our expenses, which are nearly paid off now, we're, we're going to donate to women's abuse shelters and to um, youth at risk. And uh, if you look up, uh, this is one word, soul, heal, film.com soul heal h-e-a-l film.com you can get it for a massive dollar 99 and it's meant to provoke and it's for women too because a lot of women don't realize uh, what's going on inside of men and most men don't know what's going on inside of them so it's a dialogue uh, between uh, Jose um, the filmmaker and me and Nancy Ferlotti who's an analytic colleague of mine in California uh, about uh, what what the issues are for men today. So thank you for mentioning it. Again, our, our motive is public uh, education, public service, and um, I, I hope people take a look at it. I know I am. And uh, for the audience, as always, I'll have it on the show notes. I'll have it flashing on the screen when I, when it's when we have this interview up. And you have a website that people can go and get uh, the broken mirrors and all your other work. Sure. sure, sure. It's just jameshollis.net. And, um, you know, the book is on Amazon or from, uh, you know, from the, the press itself, Chiron Books. So, you know, <laughs> Uh, I think of books as the um, opening of the classroom to many people. Mm-hmm. And again, the one thread in my life that I've most been devoted to is, is education, because I'm so grateful for, for education. And, um, you know, books are another, another classroom, as is our conversation today. Yeah, I love uh, everything you've done. And you're going to continue working. You're still... I hope so. I I hope so, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your work has made a difference in my life and many people's lives. So uh, glad glad you're around, and we look forward to everything else you put out, Jim. And uh, thank you very much for coming on Finding Hermes. Well, it's a privilege, Miguel, and I wish you well. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Always nice when the leading expert on Carl Jung of our era comes on to give us a little bit of his gnosis. Thank you very much for that, Jim. And as you, as we talked about, go for that inner journey. As I keep saying, and I'll keep banging the drum, depression, anxiety, anger, all these things are simply communications from our soul, from our spirit, the gods, or the unconscious, whatever you want to call it. And when we listen, 
that's when solutions will come to us for everything. And I understand that obviously there are often objective, objectively outside forces that can cause damage. They can take us off our game. They can injure our ego or our very psyche. They can fragment us. Um, but uh, if we are aligned with our soul, we'll be able to cope better, heal faster, find the answers to get over the very true pain and depression and sadness that the outside world will bring us. But it's much better living the inner life as uh, we don't expect the outside world to bring us answers or heal us or change our course. We can guide, we are guided by the inner infinity that each one of us are and I think Jim does a great job at explaining this not in, not only in the interview and his latest book but all through his very distinguished career as some of you may notice um, there was not a finding Hermes in December Actually, there was, but uh, we did the interview. It was a great show on Gurdjieff and addiction and so forth, and it came out just uh, terrible. It was a weird thing. It, the interview seemed fine, and then when I rendered it, it was completely destroyed. It was just not something I could publish. So we hope to uh, get back to that one, revisit that one, but sometimes it happens, like uh, the tech arc on strike, perhaps one out of 50 shows, including Aeon Byte, and this is the life we live. Um, but I will try to, again, get back to that one or double up to bring you uh, Finding Hermes and continue the content that I hope is helping you walk through those doors, find your authentic self. As far as uh, what I wanted to share with you that has worked out for me lately, uh, as many of you know, I've tried to uh, redouble or really get back into a uh, solid, into a robust meditation regime. And uh, I have been doing that. I've been using various forms of meditation, switching them out. As I often say, Wetiko has a, has a way of changing our very reality, the Archons will make sure that what worked today will not work tomorrow. So I've been playing the trickster and using different meditations, adopting, uh, tweaking, and so forth. Being Hermes myself, and I think each one of you should be your own Hermes in this age of Hermes. One thing that has worked out really well for me recently, and uh, I can hear Mitch Horowitz's ears burning right now, is the waterfall meditation and the reviewing the day meditation from Neville Goddard. Um, it's really, those are two are really great. You can find those on YouTube and they're great for reflection, for projecting positive uh, ideas and emotions, and for really communicating and open those uh, channels of communication. So I, that's worked out for me and maybe you can give it a try. Uh, yes, when I say Neville Goddard, I never think of some great mystic, but some hoity-toity coastal guy or the boss of James Bond or something like that. Neville Goddard. But he is indeed a powerful mystic and his ideas of uh, saying that all God is, is is imagination and we can express this ima imagination in our world and make a better world for ourselves outside and inside, uh, I think are, well, they're definitely aligned with uh, the hermetic and Gnostic principles. Principles. So check it out. The other meditation that I have really embraced fully, and you can find it in my book, 10 Snackable Meditations, and that is the one-sentence Sufi prayer that simply goes, uh, Today I will die and there is no God but Allah. And that has worked out, again, really well for me. I wake up in the morning, I get on my knees, and I say that prayer. And I go through the day embracing that prayer, saying, well, this is it. This is my time with the people I love, with the projects I'm passionate about, with nature, with reality. And it makes everything, I can't say better, but more real, more uh, better texture, something to appreciate for all its darkness and light. Um, sometime, and at the end of the day, I often say, well, this is it. Now it's time to die, Miguel. Did you do the best you could have done? Were you the best person you could have been? Were you the best version of yourself? 
and it's very reflective um some and the truth is is that i really do die that day i know that i will soon enter the dream world there will be another version of miguel that will go on his adventure i'm trying to remember more and more with dream journaling and he will die too and in the morning the truth is there is a new Miguel, a new Miguel that is constructed with his complexes and a new uh, tweaked ego. And once again, I go through that one last day of my life. Uh, sometimes I even play the game where I am a ghost. I wake up and I'm already dead and I pretend I'm going through the day and wonder, will my family miss me? Will my friends miss me? Well, so how, what would social media think? How would their lives go? And, uh, I always tell myself or understand that, you know, me being here does have his advantages. I do bring, uh, much to life. Uh, people would not want me to check out too early or check out at all. And it's the same for you. Trust me, you're valuable. And uh, even at your worst, uh, people really want you around. And at your best, you can make a big difference and be so embedded in the, the currents of life. So I wanted to, uh, as sort of a bonus, I wanted to share from the audio book version of 10 Snackable Meditations, the one-sentence Sufi prayer. So you'll hear it right after this in an audio version. Let me know your thoughts, and I think you might find it valuable, along with the other uh, Snackable Meditations from the book. So that's it. As always, you know what I'm going to say. I hope uh, you have found the information to go through those doors you need to go through with the God of the mind himself, the trickster. I hope you are ready to lay down your cards on the table. And I hope you're becoming transparent to the transcendent, as both Mary Magdalene and Joseph Campbell said. Thank you. And here's the meditation. Chapter 1 One Sentence Sufi Prayer The Backstory The Sufis are a mystic branch of Islam, engaging in ecstatic rituals and poetic theology. To the Sufi, life is a melody of beauty. Allah is the composer of that melody, while we are the dancers. Perhaps you've heard of Rumi. But Sufism has a rich tradition of other artistic theologians. Sufism is intricate in its practice, for sure, but it's also a pragmatic movement that has navigated perilous historical waters. We find a perfect illustration in When You Hear Hoofbeats, Think of a Zebra, written by Egyptian scholar and Sufi master Shems Friedlander where he provides a one-sentence prayer that makes life beautiful. The Meditation Today I am going to die, and there is no God but Allah. That's it. That's the prayer. Think about it. If you believe this is your last day on earth, how bad can any of your earthly problems be? Especially with the conductor of beauty in charge of what's next. Wouldn't it make any sensation more impactful, even profound? Every interaction with others so much more meaningful? Wouldn't the texture of the sky seem more real as you said that prayer in the morning or repeated it throughout the day? That sip of coffee or lunch meal would be almost divine, wouldn't it? If the idea of death is too intense, Make the prayer about you going on a very long trip where you won't experience your normative existence for a while. The bad no longer seems that bad, and the ones you love or appreciate suddenly seem as beautiful as the Sufis thought of everything on this planet. Extra Sauce Quote Live life as if everything is rigged in your favor. Rumi
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.